good day to be alive. You know, it almost hit 100 degrees yesterday. If you're at the Rangers ballpark on the field, it hit 120 degrees on the field, 120 degrees. That's, uh, that's crazy, and, and it's uh, exciting all at the same time because I thought the warm weather was never going to get here this year because we had some extremely cold weather late. And uh, so hopefully this will be a very hot, dry summer, uh, hopefully, hopefully. Anyways, last night or yesterday, actually not yesterday, Friday was also the beginning of something else very monumentous. Can anybody guess what it was? No, summer began a long time ago. Wine. The World Cup. No, the World Cup starts this Friday. Hey, I'm with you, Matthew, because in the rest of the world, it's bigger than the Olympics. Okay? So the United States is the ones that are short on that one. Uh, I'm I'm DVRing it, bro. You can come over to my house and watch it. Anybody else? What begins? What began last Friday? That's right, the new season of Whale Wars. Okay. If you have not watched this show, you must watch it this coming Friday. Animal Planet. If you don't have it, find someone who does. Okay. Animal Planet. Whale Wars. Whale Wars is the. new reality TV thing or whatever the Animal Planet's doing, where they are sending camera crews out with uh, the Sea Shepherd. It's an organization that, that was started by a guy named Paul, who actually was one of the co-founders with this other guy for Greenpeace. Okay? His name's Paul Robertson. And Paul is, uh, was so radical that eventually he got himself kicked out of Greenpeace, which is an organization that he started, because... Um, Essentially, what it came down to was Greenpeace decided to become a nonprofit organization in the states, and in order to comply with IRS standards or whatever, they could they could not take or cause damage to another organization's property. That's what one of the stipulations IRS put on them. So Greenpeace, it was all about peace, right? Uh, they they're the type of organization that like when it comes to saving animals or whatever, they would go and like the whale whaling. Greenpeace would go and put guys in little rubber rafts and put them out between the whalers' harpoons and the whales themselves, you know. But they would never cause, attack or go after the whalers themselves. They were just trying to save the whales. Um, well, Paul was one of these guys, co-founded the Greenpeace. One day, he was, he was actually the diver for Greenpeace. He'd go under the water in the Arctic waters and take pictures of the whales and stuff and other. Anyways, he was out there, and uh, he was in a boat between a whale ship and a whale, and and uh, they're out there with the whales or whatever, and he's talking about how majestic it was or whatever, and, and it was a humpback whale, I think, at the time, or a sperm whale, one of the two. And this female sperm whale comes up, and right as she comes out of the water, a harpooners, the whalers, behind them, shot a harpoon straight about six feet over his head, boom, into the whale that's like 30 feet in front of him. And so he talks about how horrific it was, which it is. If you watch the show, you'll see... Whalers, whales getting harpooned, and it is horrific because they don't die instantly. In fact, it takes like 30 minutes for them to die. Um, but he talks about how this whale immediately screamed, and it does. They do. They make the noise. And then, then it looked into his eye with its eye, and he says this. He says, uh, he says I, two, things, uh, two things were revealed to me that day. One was this whale looked at me, and oh, by the way, before, before 
they had harpooned it. They had always told Greenpeace that they were putting themselves in harm's way, not because of the harpoon that was flying over their head, um, but because when a whale gets harpooned, sometimes it'll get mad or whatever, and it will dive at first to try to get the harpoon out. And if it can't get the harpoon out, it will come out and and in those little rubber dinghies, they were they always told them that whale when it comes up mad, it's going to come after y'all. Okay, so in this specific instance where the whalers shart the whale right in front of green pieces of rubber little dinghy, um, the whale went down. But when it came up, it it didn't go after them. It went and it literally jumped out of the water and tried to take the harpooner out. And then as it was going down in the water, he, they made eye contact, and he said, "I understood in that moment." I saw two things. One, I saw uh, understanding that that whale understood what it was we were trying to do there. And two, I saw pity. Not that the whale was pitying its own kind, but the whale had pity on us that we would cause such damage and devastation and destruction or whatever. What? What does it sound like? Let's put it this way. On this week, this ep- you need an example? I can't give you an example because it's like a cannon. On this, on Friday's episode, you see a whale getting shot from a helicopter that's like 100 feet above the ship, and you can still hear the cannon going, shooting it. You can hear it all the way in 100 feet up in the air, even over the sound, the noise the helicopter's making. Yeah, the whale screams. Like Nemo or something. And thrashing and blood and guts everywhere. It's, it's horrible. Okay. Now, I'm not, here, I'm not here to argue whaling tonight. Okay. So let's get that out of the way. Because there's pros and cons for it against. Uh, I mean, you, you know, you could, yeah, you could make this, this statement that we need to take care of God's earth. Uh, then it's incredible. But then you could also make this, the argument that it's incredibly arrogant of us Americans and Australians living in our Western civilization who kill thousands of cows every day to to criticize hundreds of millions of, or millions of people that live on a little island that don't have the room to graze cattle, who are trying to feed millions of people who've eaten whale longer than we've been a country. Okay, so it, you can make the argument too, and I, I'm not going to get into which side I fall on on all that. But Paul that day, his peace with Greenpeace ended, and he decided that he was going to take more radical action, and so. Eventually, it got him kicked out of his own organization because he took, a, he took a harpoon off a vessel or something and threw it into the ocean, and it sank or something. So he stole, it. He stole property, was charged with stealing property and damaging property and all this kind of stuff. Greenpeace said, our nonprofit status is more important than you founding this organization. You're out. And so Paul went and started his own organization. And Sea Shepherd, the, the show is a phenomenal show for several reasons. One, it is incredibly humorous. Whales dying is not humorous. What's humorous is, is how serious these people are, uh, that are part of the organization take their job. For example, I'll give you a little example. One of the things that Paul says every single episode, Paul's this guy that is super intense and full of himself. Uh, one of the things he says on this every single episode, he says, the, the one thing I make them sign when they come on the ship is that they need to agree that they're willing to give up their lives for the whales. Which is humorous in the sense that Paul sends these poor people out to do ridiculously dangerous, crazy stuff. He puts them in harm's way every single day from his nice big office on his big ship, right? 
And so it, it, to me, that's humorous. A guy that is so intense and, and really tells these people they need to be willing to give their lives for the whales, but he never puts himself really in much of harm's way. That's humorous to me. What's also humorous is that the crew of hundred some odd people, all they do is talk about putting their lives on the line for the wells, how much they care. But when the rubber meets the road, every time their life is closely, perilously dangerous, they all freak out and they're all kind of like, this is dangerous. We don't, we shouldn't be doing this or whatever. And it's like, well, why are you on the ship? You know, but anyways, it's incredibly humorous that it's also incredibly humorous because Sea Shepherd is an organization, uh, while you could argue their cause is just or whatever, they, uh, they're ridiculously disorganized. They have poor leadership, and they blow money like nobody's business. So, for example, last year, uh, Sea Shepherd was one ship, and they would go go down to the Antarctic International Waters, which has been declared by the United Nations as a no-kill zone for whales, a refuge for whales. You're not supposed to whale down there. But then the International Whaling Committee has said that you can kill a certain quota of whales for research, okay, and so the the fine print that the International Whaling Com- Commission put out there was though was that each country sets its own quota of how many whales can be killed in the, for the sake of research. So, <laughs> so the Japanese are killing like 900 whales a year in the sake of research, right? Um, but but the Sea Shepherd had this one ship that they bought that they take down there, and, and basically what they try to do is just keep the whalers from getting whales. So they'll chase them around. They'll throw little bottles of butyric acid. It's, it's, a, it's a stink bomb, essentially. When it breaks on a ship, water can't get that smell out. The only thing that will make that smell go away is like a month's worth of time. So what they'll do is they try to get these bottles on the ship where they process, where they cut the whale meat and package it to send back to Japan. Because if they can get these bottles of butyric acid in that whale ship, all the meat's tainted, and they can't, they got to shut down operations, right? So uh, that's, that's about the stint of what they had to do. Well, last year, the Japanese wised up, and so the Japanese finally got tired of them being a nuisance. So they built these nets on all their ships so the bottles can't get into the ship. And they bought these water cannons that they put all around their ship. So anytime their little dinghies get close to throw these bottles in, they shoot them with these water cannons, and the dinghies are, like, practically flipping over, right? And, uh, and then they bought these things called LRADs, which are, uh, are things that were built for, for, particularly for ships, and they use them to thwart pirates from coming on board. And what it is is it shoots a sonic sound directionally, so standing right behind the instrument, it doesn't bother you. But it, if you get hit with this acoustical sound within 300 feet, it will, it will totally disorient you. It'll make you lose all your bowels, meaning you'll mess yourself. And, uh, and it can lay you flat on the ground, right? It'll make you dizzy and you're just puking and just can't, you know, it just mess you up. So. so they got this thing, right? And they put these on all their torpedo ships. There's four torpedo ships. And then there's the mothership, the Yushinmaru, which is where they process the whales. Okay. So the Sea Shepherd last year went down there and the Japanese winded up. So their butyric acid was rendered useless. Then halfway through the season last year, they got caught in the middle of ice because they're in the Antarctic. Uh, only they're, they're doing this in a ship that is not made for ice. So the ice will break the hole. And so at one point, they're, they're, they wake up in the morning and they're surrounded by ice. And uh, it just, they just make stupid mistakes all the time. There's this uh, lady that's on there that's like supposed to like bring Paul coffee or something. It turns out she used to work for the Navy. 
And so, you know, Paul's like, let's camp behind this iceberg so the whalers can't see us. And then off camera, you know, off the main camera when it's just her, she's sitting there going, that's like nautical rule 101 you don't do because the ice will expand at night. Sure enough, that night it expands. They're surrounded with ice. They all nearly die because three minutes in the water, you're dead. It's freezing cold. Anyways, just stupid, which is great fun for me. I love, I'm not the kind of person that likes comedies a whole lot because usually what you guys think is funny, I think is just stupid. This show is not supposed to be comedy at all. It's like people that that live, eat, and breathe green. They watch this show religiously. I'm not kidding. The people on this ship think that they are like God incarnate saving the whales. I find that funny. That's comedy to me. So it's a great show to watch because of that. This year, Sea Shepherd wised up. Another foolish move. Bob Barker. Y'all know who Bob Barker is, right? He's the guy that beat up Adam Sandler on Happy Gilmore or whatever. Um, Bob Barker gave the organization $5 million. $5 million. Okay. He gave them $5 million for them. In their cause. So what they did with the $5 million is they went out and they bought an old whaling ship, Norwegian whaling ship. Well, if you know anything about whaling, uh, whaling became illegal a long time ago. So this ship is decades old. They spent $5 million on this ship. And, and they, they did it without telling anybody. So this season, the first episode, you find out that they had bought the ship for like four months between seasons. They've been working to restore the ship. And so... Because the Japanese and Sea Shepherd, they've got a war going on, right? So the Sea Shepherd's already down in the Antarctic. They're trying to, to get down there to save the whales. They're, the Japanese have planes flying over to find the Sea Shepherd so they can tell the whalers where the Sea Shepherd is so the Sea Shepherd doesn't catch the whalers, right? That's how intense this thing's going now. They've got, like, their Air Force searching out the Sea Shepherd. So the Sea Shepherd gets out there. Sure enough, here comes the plane. Sea Shepherd's like, aha, we got one up on you this time because we got a whole second ship, which is bigger than this one. It is reinforced for ice. It's an icebreaker. And it's a former whaling ship, so the whalers won't even know what's about to hit them, right? And so Paul calls them, and he's like, all right, y'all. And they're not even in Australia, which is where the Sea Shepherd docks when it's not out on its runs or whatever. They're over in South Africa. He calls him on the satellite phone. He's like, all right, the Japanese plane just came over and spotted us and is chasing us to know where we are or whatever. You guys set out and we'll get you, you know, whatever. And, um, and so they're like, all right, let's go. And the whole crew gets on there, and they're all intent, and they're on the deck, and they're like, here we go. Start the engines. Well, it turns out that $5 million later, they've got nothing but a heap of metal still sitting at a dock in South Africa today. So, great show. But in Friday's episode, you got to watch the show. It's just ridiculous. Um, last season ended with him running the Sea Shepherd into one of the whaling harpoon vessels, literally. <laughs> This season, there's going to be more, so just watch it. But last episode, they were interviewing Paul, the captain. Actually, he's not a captain anymore. He's the admiral because he commands the three vessels. Sea Shepherd also has this little little vessel. So now he's not a captain anymore. He's an admiral over three vessels. They're interviewing Admiral Paul, and Paul says these words. He says, I don't believe in any religion. He said, uh, one of the things that I've discovered is that we're all a part of something larger, 
and that each each component has a role to play in in the ecosystem and the way things function. And so I firmly believe that killing these wells is going to affect the ecosystem, which will inadvertently affect us. Now, the argument that Paul doesn't make is that by going out and trying to kill the whalers, that he too is affecting the ecosystem and that the same doom that he declares for the Japanese for whaling and destroying the ecosystem, which will eventually come back and bite them, he inadvertently forgets the part that by going and destroying other human beings and their livelihood, that that ecosystem will probably come back and bite them by his own rationale. But he didn't go that far because he is the savior of the wells. So I was watching this show. I, I swear I'm going to go buy on online, buy the T-shirt uh, for camp or something. It, it's just a great show, but very funny. But here's what's sad to me. Now I'm bringing another What's sad to me is how misguided these people are and how they are truly throwing their lives away for nothing. Nothing. And particularly your generation, I want you to hear me on this. I'm not anti-green. I'm really not. God, when he created this earth, he created us to care over this earth. And he left it at our charge. Uh, but what, what Paul and a lot of the green people fail to realize is this, that when Adam and Eve sinned, the world became a messed up place. And, and while I do believe in being eco-responsible, my kids, uh, bless their hearts, growing up in this generation, my boys came back from Green Week at elementary school, and they know this song they're singing all the time, Recycle, Reuse, something else. I mean, some of y'all know it. Reduce, recycle, reuse, reduce, whatever. Yeah, so now every time I throw anything away, Max and Josh are like, Dad, why are you throwing that away? You can recycle that. I'm like, I am recycling it. We have a blue recycle bin in our garage, boys. Y'all don't see it, but I put that in there and we recycle. Okay, I understand. Yeah, we have a social, a spiritual, and an eco ecological responsibility to take care of our world. But that being said, listen, we could save the wills. We could save the trees. We could stop using paper. We could stop using aerosols. And the world is still going to fall apart. The reason the world's falling apart has less to do with our consumption and it has more to do with our sin. The world is broken. The reason that the Antarctica is melting, the reason there's a hole in the ozone, the reason that our, there's oil spilling into the Gulf is because of sin. It's because of sin. And, um, and the reality of it is, is it's not going to get better until Christ comes back. In fact, according to the words of Jesus Christ himself in Matthew, it's just going to get worse. Global warming, earthquakes, landslides, floods, all those things as a result of global warming, whatever it is, it's all just going to get worse until Christ comes back. And it doesn't really matter what we do. And the sad thing to me is that you got these people, these people. I mean, there was this couple last year that got married on, on the Sea Shepherd, which is great. I'm happy for them. But, but the sad thing about it was you got this man and this woman that are giving their lives for, for something that is futile. 
I mean, they might save one or two whales, but they're not going to impact the ecosystem. They're just not. Because ultimately, sin is going to destroy this ecosystem. It already is. The Bible says that the earth is groaning to be restored as it was created for, like that of birthing pains. And any woman in here or any man that's been married to a woman or anybody that's gone through biology knows that birthing pains get more intense and closer together until that baby comes out. And there's just no way of avoiding that. There are little things we can do to delay that, but eventually they're going to, contractions are going to get closer together and they're going to get harder and last longer. That's what you got to look forward to, girls. <laughs> wow. That too is a consequence of sin, by the way. So ultimately, these people, they're, they're abandoning their families, they're abandoning jobs and contributing to society that way, and they're, they're living their life, they're giving their life for what? For an animal that has no soul. An animal that has no soul. Bob Bakker spent $5 million for a heap of metal that's sitting in a dock in South Africa that's useless right now. And I wonder how many souls could have been brought into eternity with that kind of money and resources. Christ puts that a different way. In Luke 4, 4, 4, 5, 4, 3, chapter 4, but particularly 4, 4, you see Jesus after he has just been baptized, meaning Jesus has just made his public profession to the world that he is the Son of God. Remember, he goes, John the Baptist baptizes him. John the Baptist says, I'm not going to baptize you. You're, you're the Messiah. You baptize me. And Christ says, no, you need to baptize me so that prophecy will be fulfilled, but also so that it's my way of showing this world that I am no longer just Jesus, the carpenter, son of Mary and Joseph. I am the one that God has called. This is the beginning of my new life. My old life as a carpenter has ended. My new life in ministry as the Messiah is now revealed. And remember the story, the Holy Spirit comes in the form of a dove, and you hear the voice of God, and those people standing around heard the voice of God say, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus, right after that monumentous occasion, he does what? Right. The same spirit that comes down and in front of everybody says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, please, please. That same spirit then, the Bible says, leads Christ. That's important for you guys and for me. Because Christ didn't just take a wrong turn and end up in the wilderness. The Holy Spirit leads Christ into the wilderness to be tempted. Which is incredibly important. On a side note, for our generation, 
And kind of like what Richard was talking about this morning, that many of us got saved, and yet we still hold on to that same self-centered pride in our Christianity, thinking that Christ died, you know, and it's all about me. The reality of it is, people, is that if, if God and the Holy Spirit led Satan through some trying times in the desert, guess what? The Holy Spirit will probably lead you and I through trying times in life. It's one of the ways he grows us. It's one of the ways he purifies us, sanctifies us, or strips us of the flesh. And, and Paul talks about that, you know, and, and uh, if it happened to Christ, it might happen to you and I. So this whole your better life is tomorrow and, and God came so that you could have a perfect life. No, and that's not right here on earth. But anyways, Jesus is led by the Spirit into the desert. And here we find it in Luke chapter 4. And he's been out there 40 days and 40 nights. Ridiculously crazy. I've seen shows. Here's another good show if you've never watched it. I Shouldn't Be Alive. It's a phenomenal show. I Shouldn't Be Alive. Uh, sometimes I get scared because I love that show and I watch it so much. I get scared that God's made me love that show and watch that survival type show so much because I'm going to have to be put in a survival situation like that sometimes. You know? So now every time I go on these crazy mission trips or senior trips, you know, I keep thinking, man, Am I, you know, has God been preparing me for this crazy survival situation? You know, am I going to get stranded out in the ocean for seven days with snorkeling equipment and Leah? I mean, you know, you look at Leah, look at me. Who do you think the shark's going to take on first, you know? Um, it's like a little, I don't know, a little buffalo wild wing or the T-bone steak. I mean, come on. Uh, anyways. What? Hey, there's a lot more here than there is to Leah, okay? Leah's a little skin and bones, even though she swears that in sixth grade she was fat, but it was a lie. Anyways, <laughs> Jesus is in the desert, and he survived what is humanly impossible. He survived what is humanly impossible. His hunger uh, is ridiculous. His... The reality of it is after three, four days, he should have died from dehydration alone. You can live longer without food, but, but 40 days is just retarded. But here's Jesus, and Satan himself comes to Jesus. You and I, we don't know what this is like because Satan's not omnipresent like God. You and I, when we get tempted, I, I seriously doubt that anyone in this room has been tempted by Satan himself. You and I, when we get tempted, we get tempted by these petty little demons. Satan himself, Lucifer, the one who was bright like the morning star, the one who was so beautiful and, and reigned over all the angels as far as rank, who thought himself, who was so beautiful and so powerful, thought himself to be so much so that he thought he could even take on God himself. Satan himself comes and tempts Jesus. And in Luke 4, 4, we see him or Luke 4, 3, he says this, basically, he looks at Jesus and he says, man, I understand you're hungry. Look at that stone there. And here's the part that I love. Satan quotes scripture. And he basically using scripture tells Jesus, Jesus, hey, if you, if you call for that stone to be turned to bread, you're the son of God. It'll be turned to bread and you'll be able to eat. And that starving hunger, because... The reality of it is, is that physically by now, Jesus' body is eating himself. In order to survive, his, his major functions are, are consuming his extremities. 
His legs and his hands, at this point, physically speaking, are practically useless. His body fat content is zero because his body has used that for energy a long time ago now. His body now is consuming his muscle mass just to keep his heart pumping and his brain functioning and his lungs functioning. Needless to say, Jesus is a pile of mush that can't even move after 40 days. And he's sitting there, and Satan says, if you turn that stone to bread, God will surely turn it to bread. You are God. You can do it, and you could eat, and you could get out of that miserable condition you're in. When we read this story or we learn it as children watching it on the flannel graph, when you were my age or in your days now, you know, you watch a DVD or something, um, the flannel graph was cooler because, the lady, you know, they put it on there and stuff. Anyways, y'all don't even know what that is, but. Okay, it's retro. It's cool now. Uh, when you look at this story, it's very sterile. And it's like, oh, yeah, Jesus went in the desert. No. L- let's just put it this way. Starvation is one of the worst ways to go because it's just never ending. Up until the moment you die, it is just sheer misery. And Jesus is starving. And physically, he is dying. He should already be dead. And, and Satan tempts him in his largest point of need physically. And what's Satan's response? Silly little devil. This is Jeff D's paraphrase version. Jesus' response. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Silly little devil. Jesus answers his misquoted scripture with scripture, and Jesus says, Silly little devil, don't you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God the Father? That's, yeah. Where was the temptation in that? Ooh, that's a great question. Good question. Where is the temptation in that? What? Okay, one, he was fasting. Okay. Two. Okay, the Spirit had led him into the desert to be tempted, but the Spirit had not led him out yet. Okay, so in other words, for him to use his supernatural power on himself then would have ended that situation. Okay, so it would have ceased what he was led into the desert for to begin with. Another good answer. That's two. Anyone else? Oh, it's good. Those are great answers. Yes, the Spirit had led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. And Jesus, knowing who he was and what his duty was, for what he had been called to do. Here's a third answer to into that. One of the things that you need to understand about Satan is that while he's not omnipresent, uh, and the enemy is, is fairly ridiculous in the way that they attack us, very simple, and you always use the same stuff. They're very conniving. And, and what you need to understand is that Jesus is in the desert. He is physically dying. He should be dead already. And, and, and Satan's temptation is not just for bread. Satan's temptation of Christ here is this. God has called you here and has let you physically come to the point of death. 
you don't have to die. You are God himself. Why would Satan have gained victory over Jesus if Jesus had saved his own life in this instance? Okay, yeah, I mean, we've already kind of established that, that he, God had led him there to be tempted. But why else was this important? This is not just a temptation. This is not just the first temptation. In my opinion, it's one of the most important. Let me just answer it. Three years from now, in this moment in time, we're talking about, Jesus is going to be on the cross. And he's going to be suffering a death that he does not deserve, that is not of his own. He's going to have been led there by the Holy Spirit. And the weight of humanity and our souls weighs on the balance. And if Jesus gives in and does not die then, you and I perish and spend eternity in hell. And Satan knows that. Satan knows that three years from this moment, Jesus is going to be faced with the hardest decision of his life, humanly speaking, in his humanity. And so Satan knows that, that just attacking Jesus then and trying to get Jesus to use his supernatural place, his place as God, to overcome death then, that, Jesus, that Satan needs to break him down. And so Satan tries to break him down in an environment that is not as important and as vital as that one there. So Jesus does the exact same thing three years prior. He lets Jesus get to a place where Jesus is on the verge of death, and Satan tempts Jesus to take off his humanity, to take on his godhood and save himself. If Jesus had given in then, aside from the fact that he would not have been sinless, it would have been so much easier to give in in the Garden of Gethsemane and just go, God, forget this, I'm done. Let's just wipe out human race and we'll start over again. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes. Because Jesus' crucifixion is prophesied. It's foretold. Satan knows it's happening. The reality of it is the humans who were alive at that time should have known it was going to happen. It had been foretold. It, it, was in, it was in the Torah. I mean, it was there, plain as day. Satan's smart. Yeah. Uh, for the most part, I mean, at least in this situation, you could say that, sure. Satan knows, knows more of the future than you or I do, though. I mean, Satan knows, knows his future. Satan knows that Christ is going to come back. Yeah, Satan knows the future. Yeah. No. It's more like this. In the same way that you and I, when we sin, we know that we're sinning, but at the moment, the pleasure of the sin is more greater than our obedience to God. Okay? When, I, when I'm not married yet, and I'm dating that hottie, and things are going great, and uh, opportunity presents itself, and we're both okay, I mean, sure, why not? One time isn't going to hurt. We'll use a condom, right? 
I mean, I know God says we shouldn't, but it's not like the world's going to end today if we do, right? Maybe that doesn't, I hope it doesn't apply to all of you. It shouldn't. Maybe it's easier to say, uh, you know, your mom told you not to take that cookie that she just baked, but you reach in there and sneak one out anyways. Do you think nothing's bad's going to happen? I mean, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> but Satan sees it differently. Satan sees it differently. Satan doesn't just see Jesus turning this rock into bread. Satan sees Jesus' humanity taking on more strength than his spirit-driven life. Jesus is appealing to Christ's flesh and saying, serve the flesh more than the spirit. Satan is trying to numb Christ down for what's about to happen. Yeah. Well, Satan probably knew that Jesus wasn't going to do it, but why is still going to try? I mean, Satan's not going to give up the second that he was kicked out of heaven and he knew that he will spend eternity in hell when Christ eventually does come back. Satan's not going to give up. He's going to try to thwart God's plans. Do what? Sure he does. He's fighting with everything he's got. Yeah. Right. Satan's job nowadays is to spite God as much as he can, to win as many souls as he can, keep us from getting saved, those of us who are saved, to torment us or get us so distracted that we don't do what we have been empowered and called to do, which is lead others to Christ, get us self-centered. In the same way, Satan does the same thing to all of us. Satan doesn't come in here. To, Satan's not going to come into your bedroom tonight and tell you, go murder that kid at school that's just been tormenting you. If some of you have had those thoughts, then we need to talk. <laughs> because you're already too far down the rabbit trail. But I'll tell you what Satan will do. Satan's smarter than that. What Satan will do is tomorrow when you go to school, those of you who are still in school, what Satan will do is what he will do is he will take that one person that you're not going to think tonight that you should just kill. But what he will do is tomorrow he'll make, he'll make them do something or he'll, he'll tempt you with something that they do to just get annoyed. He'll tempt you to, be, to get mad at them. And then if you give in to that long enough, then he'll tempt that anger to turn into hatred. And then if you give into that long enough, he'll let that hatred fester until it just becomes obnoxious. And then what Satan will do is he'll tempt you in other ways. He'll tempt you uh, with the music you're listening to or the movies you're watching or the TV you're watching, and he'll match it. With that hatred you have, then he'll start showing you, let you read books or fill you with music that have lyrics that talk about violence and stuff. And he'll just heap that on top of your hatred. And if you give into that and entertain that thought, then he'll just add that to the heap. And so what Satan does is he slowly and methodically wears you down. And slowly and methodically, he, every time you give in to minute little temptations here and there, slowly and methodically you quench the spirit is what the Bible says. And the more you quench the spirit, the harder it is to hear from God and to be led by God. And soon you get to a point where you don't hear God at all. And, and then, then it's easy. Satan just keeps wearing you down. And then one day down the road, 
this little anger and hatred that started here that you never resolved and never went and apologized or asked for forgiveness because you were angry at what they had done to you. You never talked it out. Rather, you harbored that bitterness and anger. Soon, 10 years down the road, where it shows up is when you get a divorce because you are incapable of forgiving your spouse for things they didn't even know that they did. Because you spent 10 years allowing Satan to wear you down and to build up within you this ability to hold on to resentment and anger and bitterness. And so it's not like right now you dream of getting married one day and then divorcing that spouse. What Satan does is he slowly and methodically wears you down. And that's exactly what Satan is trying to do with Jesus here. He's trying to wear him down in the, the instance that he knows he's going to need later on down the road. If Satan has any chance of getting Jesus from not taking on the cross, it starts right here where he's physically dying. And Satan's just saying, hey, you're God. There's nobody here. It's not going to change your plans or your ministry in any way, form, or fashion. It's not like you turning that rock into bread is going to prematurely let people know you're the Son of God. You're about to perform all these miracles in your ministry anyways. Why not just turn that rock into bread and get on with your ministry? What are you doing out here in the desert? Man, you're dying. You're starving to death. Turn that rock into bread and eat something. Interestingly enough, what happens after he's been tempted three times and Jesus uses the word against Satan, misquoting the word every time? What happens? Anybody know? Angels come and minister to his needs. You know what angels are? You know what the word angel means? Messenger. They're God's messengers. The Spirit led Jesus into the desert, and it would be the Spirit that would send angels to minister to Christ's needs when the Spirit and God deemed appropriate. And you and I need to learn from that. Our job is to be faithful and obedient to Christ whatever comes our way as we live through it. And in our obedience, God and His timing will meet all our needs, not our wants, our needs. And in this situation, Christ turns down Satan's temptation using Scripture, and he continues to be obedient and submits himself to the Lord, and ultimately it is the Lord that provides his needs. First lesson, uh, the first thing I want you to walk away with tonight. Listen, through your life, there's going to be many trials and tribulations, many hard things. Those trials and tribulations will get bigger if you give in to the little sins that are insignificant today because the truth and the reality is there is no sin that is insignificant. There's no temptation that is insignificant. Satan does a better job than that, and the little insignificant temptations here are his way of wearing you down for the bigger ones that he has planned for your life. So we need to live a life that trusts God through the good, the bad, and the ugly, that knows that he is still in control and know and believe his word when his word says that he will provide all of our needs. We need to stop being Americans, meaning we need to stop being American Christians and we need to become Christians that are Americans rather than Americans that are Christians. God never promised us our wants and the reality of it is the majority of our wants are bad for us. What God did promise us was to meet all our needs. And then sometimes along the way, he gives us our desires as well, our wants. He says, here's the cherry on top. We need, to get, we need to get used to the idea that we need to live in our needs being provided by the Lord. Second thing I want us to look at tonight real quickly, and with this I'm ending up. 
What was Jesus' initial response to Satan in that first temptation? Scripture, but what did he say? Luke 4.4, if you're there, somebody read it. Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from our Father. Man does not live on the wants and the whims and the needs of our flesh. Rather, we live on the words of our Father. Christ could endure starvation and he could endure crucifixion because the word of God was sufficient to him. God's promises were sufficient to him. Christ knew that even if he died in the flesh, his spirit would go on and it was God's problem to deal with his flesh surviving or not, not his own. And in the same vein for us today, we need to come to a place where we realize, where we co- or come to a place where in reality God's word is sufficient for us. I don't need to understand what God has planned for me. I just need to know that he has a plan for me. I don't need to know what God's plan is for me. I just need to know that he has a plan for me. I don't need to save the environment. I just need to be submitted to Christ and the Lord. The sad thing about well wars is that these guys are living a life that is leading nowhere. The sad thing about most Christians living today is that they're living living a life that leads them nowhere. Because they're still living in the flesh. That they don't have to be slaves to anymore. You and I, we need to be living lives that are submitted to the Lord, that are living on every word that comes from our Father. And where we sleep, what we eat, what we wear, those need to be the last of our concerns. Where we go to school, what we do with our lives career-wise, the impact we leave on this world, it doesn't matter. What matters is that in all things we're doing them under the Lord and we're following His leading and His word is what's guiding us. So if God calls me to be a trash truck driver or God calls me to be the president of the United States, either one, if I'm doing them under the Lord and I'm living a life that is founded on his word, I'm being obedient to Christ, then God will fulfill his purposes through me. And in the end, I will receive my rewards in heaven like he promised. The ridiculousness of well wars is also interesting to me because it is so interchangeable with the ridiculousness in the church around the world today. There's so much stuff we do that is just pointless, meaningless, useless. We waste so many resources. And it's because we're not living on every word that comes from our Father. We're living on every whim that comes from our flesh and trying to justify it with the word that comes from the Father. Students, as we go to Yom Tour, You can dance your little heart if it's out. But if you don't know the word of God, how dare you think that you're going to change an eighth or ninth grader's life in their moment of crisis? They don't need your stories. They don't need your testimonies. And they sure don't need your dancing. What they need is the word of God. Every word that comes from their father. And when you don't own it, here and here, you're robbing them of what they need for what you want.
because you would rather do other things. Wednesday night send-off maybe should be less to do with those that are coming and praying for us, and it should be more to do with us repenting that we think because we've done this two years in a row, we can handle it again. Because from what I saw tonight, we, we're going in this so cocky that, that pride comes before a fall, and some of us are going to fall flat on our face in winter. It's sad to me. I like Will Wars. Jesus, I pray you bless this food in the nourish of our bodies. I pray that you would awaken us from our slumber our lackadaisical attitude, our justified and self-indulgent attitude that thinks that we know it and we can handle it. I pray that you would remind us that our 400 8th or 9th graders that we will see next week, that we will be Christ too. And I pray that you would call us to be true images of your son. Your son who put all flesh aside and even in the moment of death refused to do what he wanted to do so that he could live according to what you wanted. And he commanded scripture and he knew your word. And even in the face of Satan himself, he could, he could claim your word because he knew it and he lived it. And I pray that you would challenge us to do the same. I pray that for the next two or three days that we would be broken and brought to our knees so that those 400 eighth or ninth graders that we see next week would come to know the living God that they would be saved, that they would be empowered, that they would be called out of darkness and into the light, to be a generation that changes their world for the kingdom of God, useful to you, because you deserve that, Lord. We know so much more. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.